We at Renegade Animation and Renegade Pop Culture stand with the ongoing writers and actors strike that is sadly still going on. Without these talented individuals, we would not be getting any of these movies, shows, whatever they craft that you all love and want to support. If you want to support them, make sure to go to entertainmentcommunityfund.org and make sure your donation goes to film and television. To be clear, this is not a strike fund. This is a fund to help people who were affected by the strike. If you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. Also, consider supporting our Patreon. That way, we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today's episode is a very cool, comfortable one. We've got reviews for The Monkey King, streaming on Netflix. And we have The Ghibli Journey is continuing with 2010's The Secret World of Arietti. But first, let's talk about this brand new Monkey King. Well, which one, Mike? Because you can't just say the Monkey King movie because there are like pretty much like 500 different adaptations spanning across specials, TV series, animated series, animated movies. And if you want to be really technical, interpretations of the Journey to the West storyline with anime like Dragon Ball. So let's just call it the 2023 Netflix Monkey King movie, which is directed by Anthony Stacci, who did the 2014 gym, The Box Trolls. It is written by Steve Bensich, Ron J. Friedman, and Rita Zhao. The first two may sound familiar because they worked on Disney's Chicken Little, Brother Bear, and Open Season. So if you are familiar at all with anything Journey to the West or the Monkey King in general, you know that the Monkey King is about a monkey who is born from a rock. And he is different from everyone else. So instead of following what everyone else is doing, you know, following the rules and knowing that you are just a pebble in the hand of the Buddha's universe, he's like, no, I'm going to write my own story because who wants to follow the rules? So he picks up a magical staff and goes about to try to find a way to get in contact with the deities above him and to Buddha himself. Our monkey king in this iteration is voiced by Jimmy O. Yang. Along his journey, he encounters a scheming young child named Lin, voiced by Jolie Huang Rappaport. And on his journey to take down a hundred or so demons to get the attention of the gods, he runs afoul of the Dragon King, voiced by Bowen Yang. So this movie had an interesting production history. At around... Oh, I think early 2020s. It was reported, or maybe 2021. 
it was reported that Netflix was working on a bunch of projects to talk about different cultural stories. We got two of them, the Monkey King and Mech Cadets. We unfortunately lost one of them, but apparently boons and curses will be shopped around at a different streaming service or network. Which is fun, but it's that frustration of why did Netflix put down the investment when they were just going to cancel it anyway? Mm-hmm. But I digress. So originally the animation was going to be handled by Tangent Animation. They did the Netflix animated film Next Gen. Unfortunately, either due to some economic issues or the fact Netflix was not apparently happy with the results of Tangent's work, they took the project away from them. And unfortunately, Tangent, which also worked on the Maya and the Three miniseries, which was great, shut down. And the project was then returned to the original studios that were going to work on it, Real Effects Entertainment and Pearl Studios. With the fact that there are so many Monkey King iterations, you have to do something to stand out. For this one, it's like you took the original epic, combined it with Stephen Chow martial arts comedies, which is interesting because Stephen Chow is an executive producer on this movie. And, you know, he did Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle. He even did his own different take on a prequel story that took place before the Monkey King happened. Or, like, it happens right before the story points hit between the end of the Monkey King story and the Journey to the West story happens. Hmm. Journey to the West, Conquering the Demons. So it's just interesting to see how Stephen Chow found himself as a producer for this film. And the other addition to this concoction of The Monkey King is 1997's Disney's Hercules. Yep. Not in terms of overall execution, but in terms of tone and humor. Not that there are, you know, a gospel choir or a lot of pop culture references. I think the only modern pop culture reference you can find is when the Monkey King is in hell with Lin. And he goes, Shaolin Soccer! And, of course, that's a reference to Stephen Chow's movie of the same name. Of course. That's pretty much it. And... I wish I had a lot to say about this one. I do. But I think it's good, but not great. I enjoyed it more than I didn't. And I think part of that is, one, it is kind of hard to screw up the Monkey King, in part because it has been done so many times that like, even someone who hasn't read the original text still is familiar enough with the beats. And also, I think this voice cast and the people behind the animation brought enough of their own style and flair to the material that at no point was I ever bored watching this. I think the biggest hurdle this movie 
has to deal with is the fact that it has a more it feels more American than it has been adapted in the past because we literally got a Monkey King movie last year. And I would like to say that the Americanized vibe of the overall film helps, but I think it kind of hinders it at points. There's a balance issue of the drama and the comedy not mixing well at times. I see um, how that can be a problem where like they don't really find the balance between the humor and and the heart of the story. There's a really good emotional core to the movie with how the Monkey King feels alone and isolated from the world around him and how people treat him differently. And it's a shame because that's a good idea for a story for the Monkey King because the one story beat that they do keep throughout this whole thing is the Monkey King's a punk. He is a cocky, ego-driven individual and he doesn't really care about who he hurts to get to what he wants to do. And I think that's a very different feel for most animated films that we see in the U.S. Because we are not really used to stories where we follow an absolute a-hole of a character. He does develop like sort of a soft spot for Lin, but he doesn't really undergo that big of a change from like the beginning of the film to the end. Which is understandable since the monkey king story is just one part of the journey to the west story so to see him to start and end in the same place i will understand is kind of jarring for most people i don't find it that jarring i actually commend it for the fact that they keep that story note in place because at the end of the movie he still ends up sealed inside a mountain by buddha i know a lot of people are going to be weirded out by that story beat but of course i am not because that's exactly what happens in the story the monkey king gets a little too rambunctious for his own good and is about to cause a lot of havoc which is the name of the iconic 1960s animated adaptation of the story called havoc in heaven where he It's like, well, screw you, gods. I'm going to get up there, become immortal, and do my own thing. And then Buddha's like, ha, nope. Then Buddha's like, when the world needs you, the world will tell you when it needs you. So take a chill pill for now. What they do keep is the story beat of the Monkey King wanting to take down a demon. And he finds this weapon, this staff, that the Dragon King needs to conquer the world. And then it's basically just some of the other typical stuff. Like he goes to hell, he fights what I assume was an iteration of Neza when they're in the small town. And they do that joke where the village uh, leader's child is getting sacrificed to the demons. And I do like the tiny flip on the formula where the big child is not the demon in disguise. It's the tiny one. Oh, yep. Granted, there's definitely a few fat phobic jokes that are in this movie. The tone is just kind of weird because 
from the beginning, the Monkey King just wants to feel connected with the other monkeys around him. The monkeys shun him, so he trains to become stronger and stronger and makes it his goal to take down the demon that you see at the beginning with the tiger with the metal rings around his arm. Oh, yeah. By the way, that tiger demon is using a martial arts that's actually real, and you also see it in the iconic Kung Fu Hustle as one of the main characters who's a secret martial arts master uses that same fighting style. Oh, that's cool. One thing I will say about the other monkeys in that in that tribe, I think they come off a little bit too mean-spirited when all our little monkey king wants is to be part of a family, but like like they see him approaching him, he's just like, get out of here, we don't know you. It's like, yeah, you're weird, you're unusual, and have powers. Get away from us, even though there's a demon that lives right across the cliff from where the monkeys live. And it's just like, you think they would want that. But the leader of the monkeys, who's very much the never question reality, don't go against the rules and whatever, which leads to a very funny moment where the monkey king is literally reading the monkey leader's own words against him, saying like, so you think I don't need to be here? Correct. Alrighty. So then I'll leave and then go see the gods. And then that whole sequence is very funny. I thought that was a very charming sequence. And then we get a very cool montage sequence, which is very much like Hercules, of him defeating a bunch of big, nasty demons and spirits or what have you. I was not a huge fan of the musical sequence of this moment in the movie, mostly because I kept thinking about Puss in Boots' The Last Wish. Oh, are you talking about his hero song? Yeah. And it's not the movie's fault, like we've said before. A lot of movies enter production at the same time. And it makes sense that the Monkey King is this blowhard of a hero. He thinks he deserves to have a big bombastic fireworks display for his heroic deeds and a theme song every time he defeats a demon. I didn't love necessarily that musical number, but I do love when he's like actually doing his his training or just anytime he's in like a big action set piece they got this like great heavy metal hard rock background music that if you know me you know that's something i vibe with quite a lot exactly a lot of the music was composed by toby Shu, who a lot of people would know from their work on a ton of tv shows like true lies and wolves at the door unforgettable and uh, covert affairs and state of affairs but a lot of people would probably know their music best from the award-winning pixar short bow i think what also distracted me a little about this movie was the fact that it felt like it had to cater to a more u.s audience with these musical numbers and i especially felt that when we got to the dragon king's number later on in the third act of the movie once again our dragon king is voiced by bowen yang who i think is definitely one of the high points in the voice cast overall he said in a recent interview that he always wanted to play like an animated movie villain and he definitely takes it to 11 at every moment he can get he plays very much a 
flamboyant take on the Dragon King. And this is where the Hades from Hercules comparisons come in because it's very much a Hades-like villain character. Even down to the fact that he has two different little henchmen that follow him. Voiced by Joe Coy and Ron Yuan. I just found it distracting for that reason that it's just like, man, I feel like I'm watching Hercules a little here. I mean, it, again, I get it. They had to do something and not everyone has seen every iteration of the Monkey King. I don't want to f- say it feels like they were talking down to people, but it definitely felt like there was a feeling of, I wanted them to just let the story of the Monkey King stand on its own feet without feeling like it has to cater to American audiences. I understand that perspective. I also think maybe if the jokes hit bullseyes more often, then this this could have worked as like the definitive comedic version of the story. But it's not like the humor wasn't there because very much like I was laughing enough times throughout the film. I just think they tried to have their cake and eat it too. And that's where some of the jankiness comes in. Exactly. Like a lot of the jokes in like the first sequence when he enters the town and meets Lynn and takes down the demon kid. A lot of those jokes should have been funny, but I was not laughing a whole lot. And I think that's because of the fact that they have the big magic staff talk or not talk, but communicate with the monkey king when uh, it just didn't quite work there and i mean granted it was kind of amusing to also see a small reference to kung fu hustle with stephanie sue's character who plays the mayor's wife like if you've seen the kung fu hustle her character is very much like the landlady from kung fu hustle oh yeah like my favorite moments were that i found the funniest were when like they went to a portal or a place where they could literally go to hell. Yes. And there's that sequence where they, where I think it's King Yama who is like going through all these different spirits. And one of the spirits has like a live chicken and he's just like, are you nuts? There are no living beings here. Get hell. And then monkey King's just like, Oh, don't worry. I'll take care of that in just a moment. And then snaps the chicken's neck off screen. I, laughed so hard at that because I was like, that's truly dark joke to make for a film aiming at a family audience. They had more moments like that. I think this would have more well received. And I loved the little moment where the Monkey King uses Lin to distract King Yama, who is voiced by Andrew Kishino, when she's like, there's a human in here! How? Oh my goodness, how did she get down here? And Lynn has to work her way around of like, okay, no, I'm dead. I'm a fresh corpse. And then King Yama's like, okay, so what happened then? Then she goes through this whole macabre, absurd death sequence for him. And he's like, okay, welcome to hell. You're going to be in the land of ridiculous deaths. It's like, that's funny. They have some great commentary about the gods and how vain they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, the Jade Emperor is literally not interested in possibly stopping a potential threat from down the line because Buddha is not worried. And in the end, of course, Buddha finds a way to calm the Monkey King. 
But I love the line from Jade Emperor where he's like, so for this next banquet, we're going to have to go at bigger, more bombastic, and better than the one that we had last Tuesday. Like, there are moments where the, the jokes land and are really funny. They're just not as many as I wanted there to be. Or I was hoping for there to be. And the best sequences in the movie were like when they were in hell, when they were in that potion maker's home. I think it's Wang Mu. Voiced by Jody Long. There were moments where the connection between Lin and the Monkey King was strong, but it wasn't as strong as it could have been. And we find out later on that Lin was actually working for the Dragon King, very much like Megara working for Hades in Hercules. Question. Do you think they revealed that a little too early? I feel like if they got rid of like that first reveal and saved it for after like the peach orchard yeah then the betrayal would have been more effective yeah i thought the betrayal was shown too early and then it just kind of were waiting for that point for lynn to betray the monkey king like we know it's going to happen at one point or another but when you have it in the back of your mind as you watch the movie it gets a little tiring and then when the big betrayal happens the dragon king turns big and a way that it's like, once again, feels like a fat joke. Because instead of being this big, long, illustrious dragon, he's basically like, what if the dragon wore a fat suit? Yeah, it was just a weird little joke. Because otherwise, Bowen Yang as the Dragon King is the best part of this movie. And the one musical sequence that has the Dragon King's ambitious, inspirational song is the best one of the musical themes that we hear. It once again tries to balance out comedy with this guy trying to be a threat and it doesn't work because the Dragon King is supposed to be a threat but throughout the whole movie he is constantly in a bathtub because he doesn't want to get dry scales or dry skin or whatever. That was funny but every other time that he shows up like that it's like okay now the joke's starting to get a little stale. And I did not like the final fight between the Dragon King and the Monkey King. I thought the camera was too close to the giant figures. And it's a shame because the fight with Wing Mu and with King Yama were really good. And especially that one early on where the Monkey King fights that tiger demon. Like, I thought those were pretty good. But this last one... I think it needed one more workaround so it could look more visibly exciting. I think the staging could have been improved, but I still like the storytelling that was happening where both Monkey King and Lin kind of knew how to defeat him or at least how to throw him off his game by having him get struck by lightning, which then makes him grow and then he's able to go for the win. It's just a shame because there are moments where I feel like, oh, the movie really works. And I'm not hating on this movie because it's a comedy. It's just uneven execution throughout this whole thing. To where at the end, when Lin is about to say goodbye for pretty much forever to the Monkey King, I don't quite believe the Monkey King's character turn. Where he's just like, hey Lin, write your own story. 
great line kind of rings hollow. And that's a shame that it's like a movie that has a pretty solid beginning that doesn't quite make the landing. And the animation itself is pretty good. Like, it's not as good as, I would argue, the Sea Beast. But the human designs look good. The other designs, like the overall art direction looks good. I wish we had more of those 2D sequences, like what we see during the montage. Oh, yep. But I get why, like, that's not really going to happen anytime soon. But it doesn't look bad. Like, I've seen animated films that end up on Netflix that look like they had a much worse time getting put together and what have you. I think if we're comparing this to other projects from Pearl Studios, my favorite is still probably either Over the Moon or Abominable. But this still looks pretty good for the most part. Those first couple action sequences are really well executed. There's a lot to like about this movie, but I understand why some people are very much either not checking it out or have checked it out, but are just kind of in the middle about it. And I'm definitely on the more positive side of things. I definitely give it a light recommendation if you do want to check it out. If you are new to the Monkey King lore, this is definitely a good jumping off point. And if you can find it... Definitely check out the Chinese animated film from 1960s, The uh, Havoc in Heaven, which might give you a better idea of where this whole story could have gone with The Monkey King. Yeah, for me, this is a very comfortable recommendation. If you're really curious to go down the Journey to the West rabbit hole, you will probably never run out of adaptations. I mean, like, if you wanted to, there's a live-action version with Donnie Yen as the Monkey King. There's the, I think it's called the Monkey King Returns, which came out last year. And then, if you want to see the film that basically jump-started the new generation of CGI animated films, you could watch the Monkey King Hero is Back, which is not a great movie, but for animation history, it's one of the most important films in not only China's animation history, but just animation history in general. Otherwise, give it a watch if you want. We can now dive into the next step on our journey through the Ghibli filmography. Because, you know, the boy and the heron is now inching ever so closer to coming out. (laughs) Yep, so we got to pick this up double time. Exactly. So we're going to talk about The Secret World of Arietti. It was released in 2010 in Japan, but then got a U.S. release in 2012 by Walt Disney. And now, of course, G-Kids owns the rights to it. It was the first animated film directed by Studio Panak co-founder Hiromasa Yonebayashi, who we will see again in the future when we talk about when Marnie was there which I know our friend Brock recently watched. It has a screenplay by Hayao Miyazaki and is tentatively based around The Borrowers, the book series by Mary Norton. It's about a boy who goes to visit his aunt for a specific kind of health care that he needs, only to find out that his aunt's place has 
little people, borrowers that live among the household in like a small little home right under the home. Our main character is Arietti herself. And here's the different and distinct part about this movie. There are two different English dubs for this movie. It's really interesting because there's a UK dub and an English US dub. If you watch the UK version, Arietti is voiced by Saoirse Ronan. And in the US, she is voiced by Bridget Mendler, who you would know from like Wizards of Waverly Place and such. So obviously some Disney connections are here in the English dub for that we got. Which is interesting because show the boy in the UK dub is voiced by Tom Holland in his first film role. That's actually some pretty cool trivia right there. Yeah. But instead we get David Henry, who was in like How I Met Your Mother and another Wizards of Waverly Place alumni. Oh, Disney did this a lot with their dubs when they had like Ponyo and such. They had basically Disney alum or siblings of Disney sitcom alum. But we'll get there when we get there. I hope we do because I like that movie. And the differences continue on throughout the whole thing because the mother to Arietti, Homily, is voiced by Olivia Coleman in the UK dub. But in the US dub, we get Amy Poehler. Pod, the father to Arietti, in the UK dub is voiced by Mark Strong. And in the US dub, which is the one you can watch on like HBO Max or Max, (laughs) is voiced by Will Arnett. Haru, the aunt, is voiced by Geraldine McEwen in the UK dub and Carol Burnett in the US dub. Spiller, another borrower that they encounter, is voiced by Luke Allen Gale in the UK dub and Moises Arias in the English dub, with the caretaker voiced by Felita Law in the UK dub and Gracie Moore in the US dub. So the whole point of Arietti and her family is that they cannot be seen by the humans if they are they have to move because humans curiosity is sometimes too much which is a very accurate thing for pod to say yeah on one hand you might argue this is one of the least fantastical ghibli films due to its modern day setting but i would argue that it's probably one of the more fantastical settings and premises from Ghibli's filmography because it's interesting to see how much of a fantasy land they are able to craft with the borrowers at their height because they are able to make a normal garden look amazing and a house look so grand and imposing depending on where the borrowers are well borrowing from the house and such the different perspectives that they portray in the movie i found really impressive like the scene when arietti and pod go on their first borrowing adventure that was some actually thrilling stuff 
yeah, they get really creative in a way that only Ghibli can make you feel like, wow, this is like a new world to us, even though it's just tiny people walking around a normal house. Yep. And they make like bugs and rats imposing threats, the cat especially that's around there, which unfortunately just kind of comes off like a ripoff of the cat from Whisper to Heart. A little bit. The thing that I think holds this film back outside of its ending, but we'll get to that, is the fact that it has a weird time balancing out the tension and the emotional story that connects the two. Because on one hand, Sho, who is honestly probably one of the creepiest and least memorable male leads in a Ghibli movie, and... I only say creepy because of how David Henry delivers his lines. It does come off a little bit creepy, especially the first time you see him because entirely from Arietti's perspective. It's very unnerving at points. How he's just like, don't worry, I will find you and I will protect you. And it's like, <laughs> okay, buddy, <laughs> stand back a little. We're only like five inches tall. I think this is also one of the more forgettable casts in a Ghibli film because I like Arietti, I like Pod, and I like Spiller. I'm not super fond of the other characters. I think Homily is too much of a wet blanket character because all she does is just worry, 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 or freak out when she thinks that the humans have finally got to them. Even when they do, she doesn't do a whole lot in the movie. Pod and Arietti are way more proactive. I don't think we needed a villain here. We definitely did not. Sadako, for some reason, wants to kill these tiny people when it's just like, holy cow, there are tiny people. And that's always been the charm and appeal of Ghibli movies, where they have antagonists, but they're more human. Here, this has felt like a Disney villain from like a direct-to-video film. And I feel weird criticizing it because Miyazaki wrote the script. But I guess it just seems like they needed some kind of conflict, some ticking clock. Even though the ticking clock is more philosophical. Because show is more about, well, who cares about what's happening in life and who wants to keep on living because I'm going to die because I have a health issue where Arietti is the exact opposite where it's just like you could die one day you should go out there journey go on an adventure do something with your life and I like the moral aspect of it but I think it's lacking in execution this doesn't feel like Miyazaki's strongest screenplay i hate to say this but it kind of feels like he was going through the motions i think there are some aspects where it does feel like he was going through the motions and maybe that's just because he was busy writing and directing and creating what was at the time his last movie i know how many times are we going to say that i actually think we're going to say it one more or two more times because of boy in the heron and princess Monoke, but we'll get to that later it just feels like they needed another animated film. This was them giving another animation person that they trust reigns on a project. Because because the interesting thing was Hiromasa was actually the reserve director for 
Tales from Earthsea before Goro Miyazaki took over that project. And I like the interaction between Arietti and Spiller, but I feel like Spiller was there just to be like, hey, there are other small people out here and give like an actual realistically sized crush for Arietti. <laughs> but I do love the animation for this movie. Whatever story faults these movies have, Ghibli usually turns in some great character animation. I think my favorite little detail is when they meet Spiller for the first time, who brings back Pod. Ariadne's is like, well, that's a cool bow. Do you mind if I see it? And instead of just handing it to her, he flips it around so the handle is closer to Ariadne when he hands it over. I like that detail. I also like whenever whenever they like react to something, the hair slightly sticks up from their heads. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Ghibli touchstone. I love the music for this movie. For one of the few times, it is not by the usual individual, Joe Hisaishi. It's instead by Cecile Corbel, who like who is a French and Brenton singer, harpist, and composer. And I think her contributions to the music bring a distinct identity to Arietti that you don't quite get from other Ghibli movies. Almost reminds me a little bit of Tom Moore's Irish folklore trilogy. It absolutely comes off like it's a part of that trilogy of films. And... I'm kind of mixed on the voice casts. I think a lot of them are fine. This is like one of the few times you'll hear me say I am not fond of the Disney dub cast for a Ghibli movie. I think I'm just jealous that the UK voice cast has like, in hindsight, now they're all like A-list actors. But at the time, it's like, these are just really great actors. I just want to see or hear the different dubs between U.S. Arietti and the U.K. Arietti. Like, I want to hear Saoirse Ronan and Tom Holland. Show, or in this version, Sean, is supposed to be 12 years old. So why does Sean sound like he's, like, 20? Uh, That just makes the dynamic a little more unsettling. I think Bridget and David are fine. I think the only ones I liked were Amy Poehler, Will Arnett, and... Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett and Moises Arias, because I think they're fine. It was interesting to definitely see Will Arnett have to play a toned-down version of one of his normal character roles that he gets, because instead of being like, whoa, wacky, or self-absorbed Lego Batman voice, he's very dry in his delivery of just like, it's her first borrowing. We will be careful. Over and out. I think this is most subdued performance that I've heard. And I think Amy Poehler is fine. I think she definitely got better by the time Inside Out comes out. Oh, yeah. But I understand it's like, if you want to be a part of a Ghibli dub cast, you friggin' do it. (laughs) Exactly. It's like if Tarantino or Greta Gerwig calls you and says, hey, I want you to be in my movie, just drop whatever. It's like, screw it. I will do it. (laughs) now the ending this has been one of the most heatly debated aspects of this movie because it ends with of course the 
borrowers escaping the house and leaving and show being like oh no i want to see them one more time before i go to surgery and possibly die it's meant to be more poetic in some regards so it's like they're free he's free to yearn for i want to keep living then we get the monologue the infamous monologue of oh yeah show came back the year after the surgery was okay but the borrowers were nowhere to be found except they heard stories of the a house down the lake of things that are oddly disappearing. Well, guess what? That was not there in the original Japanese version. Yep, that was an American choice. I don't know why they did that. I think it ruins the emotional core of the ending, where it's like both souls are going to go on their way to live life to the fullest. Only for it to be interrupted by, well, by golly, show came back. Everything's okay. Though there's a Berenstein bear situation where a lot of people remember the monologue going, show died. (laughs) Well, I feel bad laughing at that because it sounds so utterly unnecessarily dark for a Ghibli movie to end on. But rewatching it, it's like, Okay, but I remember hearing that. (laughs) You know, it's like, that's why I called it a Bearstein, Bearstein, Bear situation. Yeah. Because everyone remembers it one way when it's actually another. And we're just kind of like, am I going nuts? Yeah, so it is official that Cho survived and is not dead at the end of the movie off screen. It's a shame that they added that in there because I love the montage at the end of them going down the river in that teapot. And I like all these little details. Like I love when Sho brings the new kitchen to the borrowers because it's like seen as this big climactic event and they think they're doomed only to find out that Sho is just giving them a new kitchen that actually works. Mm-hmm. By the way, The guy who made that dollhouse is a wizard because Carol Burnett says like, oh yeah, he made this dollhouse with a kitchen that actually works. You can make cookies there. And it's like, wow, really? (laughs) Like how the hell did you make that work? (laughs) That's where the fantasy aspect comes in because unless you have like really tiny hands, there's no way a kitchen like that will actually be like functional i know that we now live in an era where there are videos online where people are making tiny dishes and such but it's just funny for back then in 2012 to hear that and be like wow they must have gotten that toy repairman from toy story 2 to come in here to do that i feel bad that i sound like i'm dunking on this movie but it's i do like this movie i just don't consider it one of my favorites it's like mid-tier, upper mid-tier Ghibli. That sounds about right. And still, it's better than most movies. That out is there, true. So. Especially around what, like 2010, 2011? Exactly. Like 2010 was a good year, 2011 was not, and 2012 was still in the recovery aspects. I'd argue we didn't recover until 2014, but that's my opinion. So 
it's now time to spin the Ghibli wheel. And we're going to spin twice because if we're going to meet that supposed December release date or me seeing the movie at animation is film, if it's actually happening, well, we got to pick up the pace a little with what movies we need to watch. So here we go. Round one. To be clear, we are not going to cover the live action documentaries and behind the scenes stuff. Otherwise, I would have loved to talk about the never-ending man, Hayao Miyazaki. Oh boy, we got a good one here. We're going to talk about the film, the myth, the legend, the one film that you can say was the foot that went into the film-loving door that introduced Ghibli to everyone at a much bigger capacity with... Princess Mononoke. Yes. Okay, round two. We're going to watch the next movie by the very same director of Arietti, Hiromasa Yonabayashi's When Marnie Was There. Oh. Whatever you we have to say about this movie here, I really love When Marnie Was There. I mean, these are two of like, some of the best animated films you could find in the world right now. So this is going to be a fun one. But until then, we are going to be covering the summer 2023 anime season and give our impressions on the overall season and just how we're feeling about the anime industry as a whole, just from a U.S. consumer perspective. Then after that, we will talk about a retrospective on Metalocalypse since the new movie is out. I am super excited to talk about the new Metalocalypse movie. My Renegade Jukebox co-host Nick and I talked about why we love Death Clock, and we kind of had our own take on the series, but I can't wait to hear what Cameron has to say about the show and the movie. This is going to be so much fun. Exactly. But next time after that, we will be talking about Princess Monoke and when Marnie was there. So that should be fun. But until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter still until that site burns down. And on Blue Sky at Cam's Eye View. I have a website called camsiview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camsiview. That's where you can find me. And you can find me on various social media at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. And you can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and that place at Ren Pop Culture. You can also find us on YouTube on Podchaser. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash renegadepopculture. Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, basically wherever you listen. And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. In escape, so do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.